Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and develop you in the art of thinking like God. One of the best ways you can do this is by reading my newest book, Spiritual Intelligence, which is available for purchase everywhere you love to buy your books. Check out my new book, Spiritual Intelligence, and let me know what you think about it. I hope you enjoy this message today. Well, before I start, I'd just love to pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing all over the world. And we thank you that you're on the throne and that you are the leader of nations. Lord, you're the king of every king. You're the Lord of every Lord. And you have everything in control. And not only that, God, but you said that all things work together for those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. So we thank you, Lord, that even when we are daily trusting you, and can't see the future, that the future is already worked out for the benefit of everyone who loves you. Amen. Well, we have a series going, and this is the God of Reformation. We want to talk about Reformation, and I want to talk about the beginnings of Reformation and the the core values, if you will, the way that Bethel sees the world and the way that it came to this place at least my journey, and I think my journey will explain some of our journey, about exactly like what is it we're doing, what is the vision, and how do we become a part of it? We, uh, Bill and I, and many of our team, got saved in the Jesus movement, which was a beautiful movement. I got saved in 1973, in June of 1973. I was 18 years old, and I so loved the Jesus movement. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know it was a Jesus movement until 15 years later. And someone said, you were saved in the Jesus movement. I'm like, I was. And the, the motto of the Jesus movement was actually in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, where Paul says, come out from the midst of them and be separate. Do not touch what is clean, unclean, and I will welcome you. That was our motto. Like our motto right now, and we'll talk more about it, is on earth as it is in heaven. Well, the motto of the Jesus movement was come out of the midst of them, be separate, and do not touch what is unclean. And, and we were very much um, all about the rapture. We went to conferences that talked about the rapture. And by the way, if you went to prophetic conferences, in the Jesus movement, they weren't talking about how to prophesy. It was, about, it was about charts. And I remember going to many prophetic conferences where the back wall would be this long chart that, of course, we didn't have all this uh, technology in those days. And it would be a chart about when Jesus was returning. And you were identified by, a, you were pre-trib, meaning you were the rapture, you believed the rapture was going to happen before the tribulation, or you were mid-trib, meaning that the rapture would happen in the middle of the tri- seven-year tribulation, or you were post-trib, that you, meaning that you believed that the rapture would happen after the great tribulation. And basically, um, and basically the, the, the whole emphasis of the Jesus movement, I don't want to say the whole emphasis, because the emphasis was on loving Jesus. But our eschatology and the way it affected our daily lives was very much wrapped around the rapture and the tribulation. I remember uh, reading the book, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, and talking about that Jesus was going to come back in a certain amount of time. And, <clears throat> and that, of course, that book was uh, you know, edited several times, so Jesus came back several different times. Um, kind of the on, ongoing joke. But um, and I remember uh, receiving a cassette series. In those days, we listened to cassettes. And a, I remember, I think it was a six or eight uh, uh, message uh, cassette series. And I remember that one of the tape cassettes was, uh, I think it was entitled, How to Not Take the Mark of the Beast. <laughs> That's a true story. How to Not Take the Mark of the Beast. And it was, and uh, I listened to that whole series, and that whole tape message was about the mark of the beast and how you weren't going to be able to buy or sell. Of course, this is all in the book of Revelation. And how to convince your children to die and live eternally rather than take the mark of the beast and live in damnation. And I mean that the core feeling of the Jesus movement was love for people, very deep. That was, that was 
I have to say, that was a hallmark of the Jesus movement, but also a lot of fear. There was a lot of fear. And some, so many things were happening around the Jesus movement in the world. Then if you, if you think about it, the, the foundation of the information age was blossoming at the same time as the Jesus movement. And I think that it's important to understand how the mentality of the, the rapture, I call it the rapture mentality, was affecting our daily lives. For example, obviously I graduated from high school in 1973, the same year that I received Christ. I never went on to, high, I never went on to, to college or university because we thought the rapture is going to happen anytime. And what you believe about the end has everything to do with how you behave in the middle. And so we were, we were looking up, and we had bumper stickers that said, in the case of a rapture, you can take this car. There was all kinds of, like, this was not, like, relegated to one group of people or, you know, just, uh, just, the, just the, the Jesus people. It's actually, it actually, the, the entire, most of the church embraced this mentality, and I'm sure there was some that didn't. But um, what's interesting is the mindset around the rapture, actually, and the idea that we were to be come out of culture, like the goal was to come out of culture and be separate. That was, that was the reigning mindset of our day. And I want you to, to see for a moment in just one small area how this affected our actual, uh, if you will, our impact on culture. It was intentionally we were intentionally removed from culture purposefully on, on our part because we felt that Jesus was going to return anytime, and therefore our goal was to get people saved, but to stay out of the dirty cesspools, as we thought of them, of, of culture. Interesting, here's some interesting information. I was born in January of, of 1955. Um, Steve Jobs was born the same year. Bill Gates was also born the same year. William Joy, the founder of Sun's Microsoft Systems, who was also another very prominent founder of the information age, was born in November of 1954. And I can list a whole bunch of people, some that you would know well, others you wouldn't know as well, who were actually the founding mothers and fathers of the information age, who were, who were actually in school at the same time I was, went on to go to, to be in university. Some of them didn't graduate. I don't think Steve Jobs graduated. I can't remember if Bill Gates did. But many of these guys and gals, they began, they became the founders of the information age. And consequently, what's interesting, you have to ask yourself, like, why were there very few Christians at the foundation of the information age? And think about it, you know, Bill Gates, I, I'm, by the way, I'm not judging anybody's relationship with God. I don't actually know you know, who knows where they're, they're at with the Lord. But these people were definitely, you know, Bill, um, Steve Jobs was a, a Buddhist. I think Bill Gates is probably an atheist. I think he's a professed atheist. That may have changed. Uh, Bill, uh, William Joy, I think same. So the question becomes, like, why were there very few Christians in the foundation of the modern information age and in the modern age of technology? And I would like to say that Christian young people were looking for the great escape. And so there was no forerunners in the Christian age because we were not forethinkers. We were looking up and not looking out. And consequently, you look at how the impact, that, and I'm only talking about one small part of society, the impact that the, that the rapture mentality had, the waves of that mentality are still being felt today. We talk about Google and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Oftentimes people are, are think about how um, maybe I would call it liberal. I'm really not talking about liberal or conservative from the standpoint of politics. I'm talking about their values, their moral values, and how their moral values line up oftentimes so much with non-Christian and anti-Christian views. Why is that? Well, because in the foundation of those companies, and we're talking about now 45, 50 years ago, 
Christians were not seated into the foundation of those companies because when everyone else, when, when the world was having foresight, we were having upside. We were looking up and waiting for the big rescue. And consequently, we were removed from culture. The other thing that happened, or one of the other things that happened, is that, is that we began to be removed from the morals of culture. And in 1973, the same year I received Jesus Christ, Roe versus Wade passed. And it passed without a big uprising from the believers because we were looking up. We were like, hey, this place is going to hell and we're going to get out of here. And, and our debate was, is it going to happen before the rapture? Is the rapture going to happen before the tribulation, mid-tribulation, or, in the, or after the tribulation? And we actually were looking forward in a weird way to the destruction because we thought, in the last days, the world's going to get darker and darker, and the church is going to get brighter and brighter. So we actually created an eschatology for things to get dark, and in a strange, kind of perverted way, now that I see it this way at least, is we are actually celebrating the cesspool of evil, seeing it as a sign of the return of Jesus. And consequently, if you will, the world did get darker and darker. We had self-fulfilled prophecies as we built a theology around our lack of connection to the world. You know, what we believe about the end has everything to do with how we behave in the middle. I've used this example many times, but if I had a 55 Chevy and you had a restoration shop, and I took my 55 Chevy to your shop and said, listen, I want it to be restored perfect. I want it to look like the day it drove off the showroom floor. I don't care what it costs. I don't care how long it takes. And halfway into the restoration, I go check on how you guys are doing. And, I, and while we're talking about the restoration, I say, when you get this car done, I'm going to put it in the destruction derby. There's just no way that the quality, let me say this, it's going to be a greater challenge for you to do great quality work when you know that the end of this restoration is destruction. And so we have lived, I grew up in Jesus in this mentality of destruction. It's all going to burn anyway. It's all, it's all going to burn. And we would say that to one another, like we'd, we'd have a bad day, we'd go, ah, it's all going to burn. It was our mentality. You're having a problem with somebody who's like, don't worry, it's all going to burn. Somebody, something goes wrong in, in life, you know, Roe versus Wade passed, and we're like, don't worry about it. It's all going to burn. We're going to be out of here. Jesus is rescuing us. We're getting out of here. And I think you get the idea that coming out of that many years later, I began to realize, and many, not just me, but those of us that were old enough to have experienced that core value could see honestly how destructive it was to culture and how irrelevant we became to people who desperately needed the kingdom. And so we began my journey, of course, is Weaverville. By the time I got saved and ended up in this little town of Weaverville, I met a man named Bill Johnson, who you may know. If you're watching this, you probably have heard of him. And I would uh, bring all these revelation, not revelation like heavy revies, I mean like the book of Revelation, scriptures to Bill. And by the way, the conferences were still going on when I got to Weaverville, these prophetic conferences. And people, I remember, <laughs> I remember it's kind of a side note, but I remember going to this one conference where you know, at the time we had phones that uh, had a dial. It was a dial phone, like you actually had to put your finger in and dial. And, uh, and the invention of the push-button phone was just coming out. And this, this guy did this whole thing like, like all the prophecy teachers did about, with the map, and I don't remember if he was pre, pre or post. Or, you know, and they all had different ideas about who the Antichrist was. I remember that the Antichrist was the Pope for a long time. 
And then, uh, and then the Catholic Church got the baptism in the Holy Spirit and started speaking in tongues. And we're like, oh my gosh, how could the Antichrist have the Holy Spirit? And they started coming to our meetings and we're like, the Antichrist is invading our meetings. And, and then, you know, we have all these, yeah, I mean, it was really, it was, it was crazy. And we're, I mean, this is our glasses we had on. We're like, we're looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for the two prophets in the book of Revelation. And so this guy, he's a, He's, he's sharing about his ideas about the end-time prophecy, and he uh, showed a picture of what was a prototype of the new phone where it didn't just have the buttons, uh, the, the, um, you know, the numbers, but it also had a star, and it had a, uh, you know, a number sign. And he said those number signs and stars were for when you have the number on your forehead that you could actually still buy off your phone, <laughs> He didn't even know about Amazon, so he's partly right. But I remember leaving those meetings just terrified, like, oh my goodness, you know, uh, this is, you know, we were the baby boomer generation, but we decided to uh, not have children. Many, many people decided to not have children. I wasn't one of them. But, you know, there was a big move to like, um, you know, woe to you that have children in those days. Uh, is one of the Matthew 24 verses. And so we were very much like, well, should we have children because they're going to have to take the mark of the beast? And, and you could even see the birth rate decline in those days. And so this is all like, how powerful is it what you believe about the end? How powerful is that? And, and it becomes a lens in which you engage or don't engage culture. So I meet this, this crazy Jesus freak in Weaverville named Bill Johnson. And for whatever reason, like Bill didn't teach on eschatology, like, which was kind of odd. Like I, 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 we never talked about it the first couple of years. And I noticed that Bill, you know, used the book of Revelation like only in a positive way. And I would bring him all these cassette tapes about, you know, the phone, our phone systems are rigged and we're all going to hell. And Bill would thank me and I'd say, did you listen to that? And he goes, no, nah, I don't listen to stuff like that. And Bill started preaching this message of the kingdom. And I, I remember, I don't know if I remember the first time, because I've heard hundreds, literally thousands of messages that Bill preached. But I remember reading the Lord's Prayer with Bill in, on a Sunday church, which was, our church was, you know, at its height was like 250, 300 people. And reading the Lord's Prayer, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I, I, you know, we prayed that prayer in the Jesus movement and there was a fulfillment of the return of Christ and beating the devil. We read that verse as if this, we're gonna pray this for thousands of years and someday God's gonna fulfill that promise when he defeats the Antichrist and throws the beast into the lake of fire and you know, and so on and so forth. And Bill's having us read these verses, verses that we've read before, and he asked the question, like, should we believe that God wants it to be on earth as it is in heaven? And I'm like, yeah, after the beast. And Bill starts talking about the kingdom and how Jesus preached the kingdom and how he told us to go everywhere and preach the kingdom of God. And how the book of Revelation talks about the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God. And, and it, it was, you have to understand, for some of you, you may not agree with this teaching, but this is popular teaching now. Like, this is the prophetic training of the, of the Jesus movement is, it is on earth as it is in heaven. And we begin to ask ourselves questions like, are we supposed to impact culture? I remember... This wasn't that long ago. Um, well, let me back up and say this. I can't even tell you how many messages I've heard that included in the last days, the church is gonna get brighter and brighter and the world is gonna get darker and darker. I, I, I honestly, I would, if I even tried to guess it would be in the hundreds of times I've heard that phrase over all the years I've been saved. And then I started to read the verse and wonder, like, 
Isn't it funny? It says, Jesus, Jesus prayed, told us that you're the light of the world. This is John, uh, Matthew 5, 14 is one of the places. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Nor does anyone lay a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to the whole house. And Jesus is talking about, you're the light of the world. What are you saying? You're the light of the world. Where is the light? It's in the world. And I, and I began to ask the question, like I, I, I heard someone preach this message of in the last days, the, the darkness is going to get, the world's going to get darker and the light's going to, and the church is going to get brighter. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, he's reading the verse and misplacing the light. I remember the first time that I ever thought that. I'm like, it says you're the light of the world. It doesn't say you're the light of the church. It says you're the light of the world. And I'm, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, the, the, the passage he's using to make his point is actually a passage that is against his point. Because he's talking about that the church is going to get brighter and the world's going to get darker. And yet the Lord said, you're the light of the world. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, he just read, you're the light of the world. And I had never thought of it before, but Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but sets it on a lampstand for everyone to see. The next verse says, do your good works in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. If we're the light of the world and the world's getting darker, <laughs> whose fault is that? And I begin to actually grieve over these passages. I mean, grieve in that I was taught wrong for so many years, and it so changed the effect I was having on not just the broad world, but on my own community. That I was actually celebrating bad news as good news in the kingdom. I was actually relegating the world to a cesspool in the name of a rapture that was going to save us all out of it. And I began to get deeper and deeper, and Bill was teaching this. Also, Matthew 28, Jesus said, he rose from the dead and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now you go and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. I, I want to point out a couple things. First of all, Jesus said, all authority, he, he rises from the dead, and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, for those of you that have followed us for a long time, this is maybe a little bit elementary, but maybe for some people who are watching us for the first few times and haven't heard us talk about this, I think it's really important to understand what Jesus is saying there, because the people he was speaking to in first person, his disciples, when he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven, they would have not have been surprised about that. But when he said, and on earth, that would have been a surprising, maybe even shocking verse to the, for, to the people who were actually in that conversation. Because, see, when Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were told, be fruitful and multiply, God blessed them, he made them in his image and his likeness, and then he said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. In other words, Adam, man, representing mankind, was given authority and responsibility for the entire earth. It, you know, some people say, this is dominion theology. No, it was actually the words of God to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. What happened when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in chapter 3 of Genesis, as we most will know that story, is that God said, you can eat any tree except for this one tree. Eat the tree of life, live forever, don't eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And most of us would know that story. Lucifer came, spoke to Eve. Anyway, they all convinced Adam and Eve to eat the tree, the only thing God said no to in the entire garden. And Adam eats the fruit. And we've taught for years that Adam disobeyed God and sin came into the world. I would agree that Adam disobeyed God and sin came into the world through Adam's disobedience. Um, that's Romans chapter 5 and 6. But here's the other thing that happened. Adam didn't just disobey God. He obeyed the devil. That's how we end up with the God of this world. Who empowered the devil to have power over the world? Not God. 
Adam. Adam was given authority over the earth. God said, don't eat the tree. Adam, Lucifer, Satan said, eat the tree. And when Adam disobeyed God, he also obeyed the devil. And mankind came under a new God, the God of this world. So what happened? Because God gave authority to man, to humans, over the earth, the only way for God to get it back rightfully is he, God, this is so crazy, profound, revelatory, and powerful, and yet so well known. God had to become a man. God had to become a man. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, the son of God became the son of man so that sons of men could become sons of God. He had to defeat the devil as a man because God gave authority over the earth to man. So when Jesus defeats the devil, is crucified on the cross and rises from the dead, and the Bible says takes the keys from Satan. And he says, all authority has been given to me. Authority, the word, a Greek word, something like exousia, authority. It's like, it's like the badge on a police officer's uniform. The gun would be like, uh, would be like dudamus. That Greek word is the word power, dudamus. He has a gun. But the badge is exousia. It means he has authority to use the gun. He has authority to arrest people. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven, listen to this, and on earth. Therefore, you make disciples of all nations. In other words, authority will flow from you to them. You will make disciples, not just in nations, but of nations. Now, I want you to think about this. That was not a new idea. It was actually the promise made to our father of faith, Abraham. Abraham was told, you'll remember the story probably, come out and look at the stars of the sky. See all those stars? Count them. Abraham's trying to count the stars. God says, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And then he goes out and says, go, hey, count the Count the sands of the sea. Count all the kernels of the sand. And he's trying to count those. And God's like, that's how many descendants you're going to be. And here's the promise. You shall be a father, not in nations, of nations. The, the, the prophecy to Abraham, listen to this, the father of faith, who Paul says that when you believe Jesus Christ, we were grafted into Abraham, the father of faith. <laughs> this is so crazy. And we receive the promises that were given to the faith father were now ours. Let me read it to you. In Romans chapter something, 4, verse 17, listen to this. Speaking of Abraham, a father of many nations I have made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed that he might become a father of many nations according to that which was spoke. And listen to this, and so shall your descendants be. So shall your descendants be. In other words, the, the original promise was to Abraham that you were gonna be a father, not to Israel, but to many nations. And by the way, that legacy is gonna flow through your descendants so that your descendants will be fathers of nations. So profound and powerful that we were called to be fathers to nations, mothers to nations. We were to have authority in the nations. This was, remember, so we go back like in Genesis 1, be fruitful, you were made in the image and likeness of God. Be fruitful and multiply and take dominion of the earth. Gen the, the, the story, the Genesis story, Abraham encounters God. God re, again redefines the Genesis 1 commandment, or if you will, promise to man in Abraham, and you shall be a father to many nations. Jesus comes on the scene. He, re, he, he, he reignites the promise that was started in Genesis story, was confirmed in the Abraham story. Now he's saying, I have all authority, <clears throat> and here's how it's going to flow. It's going to come through you, and you're going to be, you're going to disciple many nations. You're going to teach them everything I taught you. This, this, in my mind, is so powerful. It breaks the rapture mentality. Do you believe in a rapture? 
you know, I believe that we're going to be caught up with Jesus. The Thessalonians says that. But I'm talking about the mentality that takes us out of culture and has us not give a darn about what happens to the world in the name of God. And I believe that the Bible teaches that we were to go everywhere spreading the kingdom. That we were to go everywhere spreading the kingdom. And that we were to make disciples of nations. Isaiah 61, I'll just quote a couple of these, was a, a passage that I received early on, uh, both obviously in the Bible, but as a prophetic declaration over me. As a matter of fact, two of my grandkids tattooed it on their bodies. They actually called me and said, Papa, what is your, do you have a model verse? And yes, the Lord gave me this verse, these verses, when I got saved. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon you, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon you, for the Lord has anointed you to preach the good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, speak release to captives, freedom to prisoners, the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to grant all those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's the third verse. That's one through three. The fourth verse goes, then they shall return. Who? All these broken people, the delivered, the healed, the restored, those who were depressed and got joy, those who were mentally ill and got healed, those who were captive and got freed. And then they shall return, then they shall rebuild the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastation and rebuild ruined cities. What is the outflow of personal salvation? It's, it comes in you to heal you, and it flows out of you to heal cities. I could go on and on about verse after verse after verse that tells us that we were called as people who are here to reform or transform cities, that we are the light of the world. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 21, in his, in, in his name, the nations were put their hope. He who gives the most hope has the greatest hope impact, the greatest influence. What is actually happening? I wrote a book called Heavy Rain. I've shared this message many times. I wrote a book called Heavy Rain. And before I wrote that book, we were doing some research. I was doing some research, and I had this encounter with the Lord. This would be about 20 years ago. And the Lord started talking to me about apostles. And I and I'll just give you a three or four minute overview so we don't take a bunch of time for this. But, and I started realizing, and through this encounter, this revelatory encounter, then the research I did that, uh, after that, that apostle, first of all, the word apostle in the means sent one. It was actually, the, the, the word was invented by the Greeks, and it, uh, and it was later a it was later embraced by the Romans. The Romans, um, they were people who, especially in the first century Jesus was in, and, and a little prior to that and way after that, they were kind of like Hitler. They wanted, to, they wanted to rule the world. And so they were conquering lands and expanding their kingdom. But here's what they learned. They would take over a land, like let's say conquer a city, then a next city, and then a next city. But when they went back to the first city they conquered, the people, even though they were conquered, they would go back to their old ways. And you know the adage, when you're in Rome, do as the Romans do. So the Romans like, why are we conquering lands and cities, but we're not culturizing them? So the Romans were the ones that picked up this Greek idea of apostle, and they took the word apostle and they made some of their Roman generals apostles, like they actually called them apostles. Now, the word means sent, but it actually has a greater connotation, which is why they, why they actually named their Roman generals apostles. It means to be sent from a place to another place, to reproduce in the place you're sent to what you're sent from, till the place you're sent to looks like the place you're sent from. We would call it cultural transformation or cultural reformation. So they named some of their generals apostles, and when they sent them out to conquer, they sent out, of course, the armies, but with them went the artists and the politicians and the teachers and the trainers and, 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 the, and the singers. And the point is, is that they would conquer 
but then they would culturize to the Roman culture until what they conquered looked like Rome. Remember, Jesus and the Israelites were under Roman rule at the time. So when Jesus promotes his disciples, meaning learners, to leaders, he could have called them he could have called them many things. He could have called them patriarchs. There was 12 of them, and there was 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament. The priests, there was a whole Levitical priestly order. You would have actually thought that he would have called them priests because that was the term for the kind of holy people that led other people. But instead, he takes this really secular idea, or at least title, and he says, you, to the disciples, you are my apostles, and he names the first 12 apostles. Now, you and I, it, it's not as meaningful for you and I because the word is kind of become a holy word, but in their day, it was actually an active word. It was like, this is your job, that you would, that, that you would take the kingdom and that you would internalize it, the kingdom within you, and then you would spread it. It would become the kingdom around you. And then he doesn't just name them apostles, but he gives them an apostolic prayer. What am I talking about? The prayer we all pray. Think about it. We pray, our Father, not my Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where are we seated? In heavenly places with Christ. What's the goal? To take heaven. (laughs) The goal. What's the prayer? Is that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we we our our whole emphasis is getting people to heaven, but the emphasis of the of God and the emphasis of the prayer is to get heaven in people, to get the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And what I'm getting at is that when I was writing the book Heavy Rain, we did a statistical study on only American cities. Now this book was probably. Uh, it's probably 10 years old, 12 years old. And we did a statistical study on U.S. cities, American cities, and here's what we learned. The cities that had the greatest Christian church-going population had the worst social statistics in our nation. In other words, the, great, the larger, the, the, the more percentage-wise Christians went to church the more crime increased, divorce rates climb, poverty index rate will raise, unemployment rate goes up, drug use goes up, school dropouts rate go up. I'm saying most pastors think if people came to church, it would transform my city. But actually, what the actual statistics show that the more people that go to a Christian church, the worse off the city is. I didn't say the worse off the people are in the church. I'm saying that the worse off the people are in the city. I call it the huddle effect. Jesus said, no one takes a light, puts it under a basket. Remember, I'm the light of the world. Then he said, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. What I'm getting at is that we believe that the church was going to get brighter while the world gets darker. And the church became a basket in which the church gets brighter while the world gets darker. And we did it proactively. It's a self-fulfilled prophecy. And we measure success by how many butts we put in a seat on a Sunday morning and still, instead of how, how much impact we have on darkness. And I'm saying that this, this has to stop and that we are called to be an apostolic church in an apostolic age. The devil would love for us to believe. Don't be involved in anything that affects the world. Should Christians be involved in politics? I mean, for us that are Americans, I mean, just read your constitution. Just look at most every major document in American history is based or at least infused with the Bible. And today we're like, we don't want those crazy Christians here. And we can talk about, you know, why that is someday. Because I think that when we're trying to Christianize the world instead of kingdomize the world, that we're controlling people instead of building an empowering culture where people can actually be fully actualized. And so that's, uh, that's what we need to, to talk about. There's so much to say, and I have about 15 minutes to finish. One of my favorite verses is in Daniel chapter 7, and I'm just going to leave you with chapter 7, verses 9 through 27, but Daniel sees a vision of the future, and 
he asked the angel of the Lord, what does this vision mean? And because of time, I'm just going to give you the outflow, the interpretation of the vision. The angel said, the saints of the highest one will receive a kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever for all ages to come. And then he goes on to say, when will the kingdom, when will those, when will those receive a kingdom that lasts forever and ever? In fact, let me just read you this part. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom to all peoples and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel said, what does that mean? And he said, the saints of the highest one are the ones receiving a kingdom and that are possessing a kingdom that lasts forever and ever and has dominion for all times. And the question becomes, when do they receive a kingdom? And the answer to that is, when judgment is passed in favor of the saints of this highest one, and the time arrives for the saints to take possession of the kingdom. Listen to this. The court sat for judgment, and his dominion, speaking of the devils, would be taken away, annihilated, destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people, the saints of the highest one. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, which will not pass away, and all dominions will serve and obey him. What I'm getting at is this depicts the time when Jesus dies on the cross, he rose from the dead, he destroyed the kingdom of darkness, and he gave dominion, a kingdom, and glory to his people. Remember John 17, Father, the glory you gave me, I want to give to them that they might be one. And what's the message that he gave us? Go out and spread the kingdom everywhere you go. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. We have, it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, and so we're living in a time we call the kingdom of God. We are an apostolic church, so let me, let's talk a little bit about the practice of an apostolic church. We're an apostolic people who are commissioned by God to shape culture, transform cities and nations, and bring heaven to earth until the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God. So number one, we must ditch the victim mentality and start thinking like royalty, and start thinking like royalty, whose father is God, the God of everything. I, I, I got to tell you, like, we have to ditch the victim mentality. We are not a subculture. We are a counterculture until the cultures of the kingdom, until the culture of the kingdom infiltrates all culture. We are not a subculture. We are not sub to someone else. We are a counterculture. <laughs> I mean, you know, we have all authority. We are not victims. We have to break the victim mentality. Number two, we have to think we and not me as we've been, as we've been in leadership and as we are being given leadership and responsibility for a city. Let me try it again. We have to think we and not me as we've been given leadership and responsibility of a city and of a nation and of states and so on and so forth. But I want to talk to our people right now specifically you know, the, our, the, the Lord's Prayer is our Father, not my Father. I was talking to a man, we were flying, um, this is a few months ago. In fact, I've only flown twice since, uh, in eight months, I think, or maybe three times. And he was a former uh, fighter pilot in Afghanistan, and now he flies for FedEx. And we were just talking about the pandemic and about mass and all that. And anyway, it was a longer story. You know, it's just uh, like, we don't know, you no longer say, it's nice out. The weather's nice, isn't it? What do you think about the weather? Now it's like, what do you think about the pandemic? So we have one of those conversations. And he just made this observation. It was, it, he was, he's an American. And he said, I fly to Japan. My route is Japan. My, one of my main routes is Japan for FedEx. And he says, and everyone wears masks in Japan. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, they have a we culture and we have a me culture. In, in America, it's all about, is this helping me? But in Japan, it's all about, is this helping us? And by the way, whether you wear masks or not, you know, do they work? I don't know. I mean, that's not the argument. I'm talking about the mentality. The mentality. We have to move away from, it's all about me, and it's all about how, how much benefit it, you know, it, it has on my life and, and the things I care about. We have to, if we're going to be... If we're going to be fathers and mothers of nations, we have to bring in this we culture. How does it affect the people around me, not just me and my three? We're apostolic people. 
who are called to shape culture and be cultural architects. And there's a war over who gets to shape history. Number three, because we're leading a city and not just pastor to church, we don't have the privilege of thinking like leaders who are just leading a pastorate. I'm saying there is such thing as a pastorate. There are uh, apostleships, what we just described. Apostleships are people, are leaders that actually are, are, have a mandate from God to train, equip, and deploy their people into culture to train, to equip, I'm sorry, to mold culture, to have, to bring the kingdom into culture. And by the way, I want to say, just so I don't forget, we can't bring, we can't come into culture as invaders. We have to get that language out. And we're invading, you know, her, heaven's invading earth. I love that book, by the way. I'm talking about the mentality. It's like, we must come through invitation, not intrusion. We must demonstrate the power and wisdom of a superior kingdom so that we get invited in as Joseph did, as Daniel did, as Esther did. In the old covenant, these are people that worked in Gentile nations who would have been seen as evil nations from the perspective of the Jews, and they actually came in invitation from the king. And by the way, very difficult to throw rocks at the palace and be invited in by the king. You know, uh, I had this metaphor come to me this morning. We, uh, we have jet skis. Actually, we don't have them right now because our grandkids blew them up lately. If jet skis, and if you've ever, uh, you know, been on a lake or whatever, you, you have this area that's uh, where the harbor is, where you come in, there's these buoys, and you have this five-mile-an-hour area. And if you come in on a jet ski at 20 miles an hour, in the buoy area, in the five mile an hour area, you're probably, you're definitely guilty of, and should be ticketed. But not very many people are gonna feel the impact of your offense. <laughs> On the other hand, if you have a ship, a big ship, and you come in, you couldn't even do this on a lake, but you come in to a harbor at 20 miles an hour and you're supposed to be going five, it's not about whether or not you deserve a ticket. It's about how many of the other boats are gonna survive your wake. How many boats are you gonna overturn with your offense in the harbor? This is very challenging season for everyone and everyone's trying to navigate what's the best way to find success for the kingdom, for my family, for our congregation. And Bethel's a church of 11,000 people. There are, there are lots of larger churches in the world and in America. We're, we are not pressing becoming the largest church. We're not, we're not close to being becoming the largest church. We're not even trying to be a large church, to tell you the truth. Bill, Bill always says, I don't care how many people come to this church. I just care we obey the Lord. But the interesting thing is we are anomaly in that we're a church of 11,000 in a city of 90,000. That's kind of like trying to turn a ship in your swimming pool. I'm not in any way, by the way, I'm not in any way bragging. I don't think you can measure success in the kingdom by how many people come to your church on a Sunday. I think that's the point. Like, you can measure success, if you measure success by how many people come to church on a Sunday, you have the wrong measurement. The kingdom doesn't measure its impact like that. Think about Jesus. Jesus preached the messages in which he had crowds, thousands were following him, and he preaches this message about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and they all leave. And here's, here's my point about values. He doesn't do anything to go, hey, I'm not actually talking about cannibalism here. Hey, come back. I'm trying to say you know, you got to take part in my body. You're part of my... He, he doesn't try to explain. And his disciples are like, what a bad message. <laughs> Just destroyed the church with one message. Offerings are going to be low next few weeks. And he doesn't, he doesn't measure success by how many people come into a building. So anytime Bethel does anything in our city, it has a big impact. How We have to understand how our behavior affects the well-being of our city. Uh, and, uh, and listen, I, I, all I'm trying to do today in this 
final part of this message is to talk about how do we actually transform a city? You know, the two-thirds of my message is that we are called to because so many people follow us and they still don't understand. Like, why are you guys trying to transform a city? Why don't you just love people? It's like, that's what we're called to. Read Isaiah 58. Read Amos chapter 9. All these verses I didn't do today. You know, it's so what Bethel does, and by the way, there's other churches in the same all churches are powerful. Everybody that loves Jesus is powerful. I'm not trying to make... Bethel's so, so much more powerful than anyone else. No, no, I'm talking about the particulars of gathering this many people in a city this size and how much more difficult it is to decide what to do in the pandemic, for example, because if the goal is to do your good works in such a way that people see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven, and more metaphorically speaking, you come blowing your ship into the harbor at 20 miles an hour, and you don't care that the other boats are turning. You're capsizing other boats because of your actions. And I'm saying, if we were this size, and we were in San Francisco, or New York, or Sacramento even, or, or L.A., and you're a church of 11,000, and what you do is mostly affecting the people who come to your church. And the effects that you're having on culture are there, if you will, they are diluted by how many people are there. You know, if you put a little bit of uh, urine in a shot glass, no one's going to think about drinking that. But you put the same amount, you know, in your swimming pool, it's like almost undetectable. And I'm simply pointing out from the standpoint of impact, that what we do, it's, it, it, on, it has a greater impact on our city, be it good or bad. So people send us letters every, every day. I get several. I know Eric and Canis, by the way, doing a fantastic job. They're getting, they're getting their share also. So is Bill. So people are like, why don't you open? Like, we need to open. And I'm pointing out that it's the, the decision that we face in this apostolic mindset of how are you impacting your city? And by the way, we spent 21 years building in our city, helping our city, sending 2,400 students into our city. It's important that we, what we do impacts our city in such a way that people see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. I'll give you an example. You know, we, this year we... Of course, this is before the pandemic spiked in our city. We have our school ministry, and we decided to have it online and on campus. And last year, we graduated almost 2,600 students, 2,500 something. And this year, we, we, we interacted with the health department, and they said, listen, you got to social distance. You have to put, you know, wear masks. And they gave us um, several. We worked out this plan with them so that we could have about 1,600 students. So about 1,600 students came to the school ministry, and we had to have them quarantined, so we did that. But we started thinking, listen, we, it's not just about optics. How do we keep our city safe? We have 1,600 students coming from, I don't know how many countries this year, 50 countries, maybe 60. And how do we make sure that we keep our city safe? So not only did we quarantine them for 14 days, which was required, but we also tested every single student. And, if they, and I think there was eight or nine who tested positive. I thought there was none, but there was eight or nine. And uh, all of those students who tested positive, and by the way, we tested them three days before they came to school, so they would have that, that germination time of the virus. And anyone who tested positive had to be quarantined. They came to school, and at school, they got their temperature tested, which was not required. We social distanced them. We put masks. Everyone had to wear masks all day long. They had to fill out when they checked in at their checkout station, they had to fill out a form that basically asked them, like, have you had a fever? Have you had any symptoms? If the answer is yes, they were sent home. And all that to say that uh, a month and a half or two months into school, there was a breakout in our city. And about 38% of those for about two weeks were our students. And we had to develop tracking teams. We had to develop care teams so our students didn't have to leave to get medicine or food so they didn't spread it. I mean, all of this had to happen quickly. We had never been in a virus before. So it took us probably a month and a half or so working with the health department and developing a team, developing a strategy. How do we stop this? And we found out that our students, mostly they didn't catch 
I think we had just a few that caught the virus as we tracked inside our public meetings. Most of them caught them at, in their homes, which we were not prepared for. How do we, we, they don't have dorms. And all that to say, the impact, that impact that that had on our city was tremendous. And the impact that it had on our students was, was even crazier. And what happened was that our students began to lose their jobs, not because they were actually were carrying the virus, but because there was a couple hundred of our students that were infected. The newspaper caught wind of it. They began to blame Bethel for the virus. And of course, spreading the virus, of course, part, that was partly true. So our students were seen as lepers. And they couldn't, many of them couldn't even use their laundry facility in the apartment complex. And they began to be ostracized. And we, you know, the city council, mostly the board of supervisors, began to speak against us and call us out. And business leaders were you know, saying, you know, Bethel doesn't care about people, and on and on and on and on. And my point is, is that even though we took all these safety measures, because our, some of our students got sick, and there was a spread, and that was all true, people thought we didn't care. They began to, they began to redefine 20 years of ministry through the lens of infected students. They began to say things like, you guys don't wear masks there when we're actually completely wore masks. And by the way, we canceled 32 conferences and, and, and uh, we, we went completely on, almost completely online. The only meetings we had were outside. Um, still to this day, I'm, I'm doing this, I think this is what, month eight or nine in the virus. We've not seen a gathering of our people except for I think four times on the lawn or five times on the lawn. And just, we're not doing, by the way, it's not about complying with the governor. It's, and it's not about optics. How does it look to the city? No, no, those are important to people who don't actually have an impact on the city. We're not a jet ski. What we do affects and could infect our city. And so the good news is, is, that, um, is that in the last, I think it's been three or four weeks, we've had no new infections. I think all of our people are out of quarantine, and there was a big spike in our city uh, this last three weeks, four weeks, and we were participated in none of that. We, as far as we know, there was no students and no staff sick in that outbreak, which we're still, we're still having right now. Um, where am I going? And let me, I need to land this because we're running out of time. I want to say that it's important that we carry a kingdom mindset. Should we open? Should we close? I'm just, I'm just sharing this as one example of something current in which we are carriers of the kingdom of God. Our message is God cares about you and loves you. It's hard to preach one thing and have a negative effect on our community in another. Should we open? Maybe we should open. Maybe we will open next week, next month, six months, three months, two months. But I want you to understand in an apostolic house, in an apostolic movement, it's not just about how do we keep me and my three healthy. It's about how are we impacting culture and are we, are, is our city actually having a positive benefit from us being in our city? Other churches are opening and they should. If God tells them to open, they should. Several of our friends are even defying our governor's order and they feel like the church is essential. I feel the church is essential too. The question isn't, is the church essential? The question is, at least in our city, is how does an essential church minister in a way that brings healing to a city and not create more damage? Those are the questions. Now, you, you may not agree with the decisions we've made to this point, but those are the core reasons why we've made those decisions because we want to be the light on a hill. We want to bring good works in a way that people see those and glorify our Father. It's not about the fear of the people. It's about the responsibility that the Lord has given us to be people who restore ruined cities, rebuild ruined cities, and bring the kingdom everywhere we go. If you want to stand right now, I just want to pray for us. Lord, I just thank you for this mandate that you've put on the church worldwide, that we are to be the light of the world a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. We're to do our good works in a way 
That when people see them, they glorify our Father who's in heaven. Father, we are to bring the, the power of God and the wisdom of God in a way that causes people to invite us, if you will, into the palace or into the conversations about how do we walk through this virus, this pandemic? How do we, how do we solve the issue of fatherlessness? How do we, how do we take care of this, this issue of, of, of abortion and all the things we're going through? Lord, we just pray right now that you would release courage and wisdom on the body of Christ. And Lord, that you would give us the mind of Christ and we would know what to do in this hour. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. I just pray that your house would be so blessed. It would be like Obed-Edom's house when the Ark of the Covenant was parked in his garage and it says and everything he did was blessed. I pray that everything you do would be blessed. You'd be like Isaac who sowed in a famine and he reaped a hundredfold. God bless you and I be powerful and, and we just we pray for your, the well-being of your family. I hope you enjoyed that message. You know that this podcast exists to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and develop you in the art of thinking like God. I want you to experience what it means to truly think like God and have the mind of Christ. So just a quick reminder that one of the best ways to do this is to read my book, Spiritual Intelligence, which is available for purchase everywhere you love to buy books. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to share your thoughts with me.